Welcome to Stage, this Streaming Age podcast. We're delighted to bring to you a very special episode, the last one of her first season, actually. Our guest journalist, Juan Canela, presents a two-part podcast episode that swims into the depths of the poetic imaginations of artist Eduardo Navarro, transdisciplinary duo Barilla, and their companion on stage, episode 7, the animated octopus goddess Octodurga. This is a co-commission between Stage and TBA21 Academy. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tba21.org and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to share it with your friends and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. Hello everyone, I am really happy to be here today moderating this conversation in which we will dive into some unexpected waters where art and science can meet. We will be speaking about Octodurga, a project created by Argentinian artist Eduardo Navarro in collaboration with Indian collective Paraya for Stage, a digital initiative launched last September by TBA21. Stage is an online invitation to artists, institutions, practitioners and activists to engage together with the current moment and mitigate the cultural loss produced by the COVID-19 crisis. Eduardo Navarro investigating in his practice different ways of transforming our sense in order to have a new understanding of our world. His works range from large-scale sculptures to actions and participatory installations that point to empathy and contemplation. Baraya is a transdisciplinary artist, sound designer, poet, and author duo from New Delhi, India. They have continued to transcendentally spiral to and for photography, visual poetry, electroacoustic soundscaping, multimedia translations, and philosophy. Octodurga is the main character of the project they developed for stage during this complex year. It's a post-Big Bang underwater cephalopod dancer from the depths of one of Jupiter's moons, from Europa's oceans. We will be speaking today with Marcus Raymond, director at TBA21 Academy and curator of the project, who has been involved in all the conception and production process and Roger Hanlon, marine biologist and senior scientist at the Marine Biological Laboratory and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Brown University. In his research, Roger studies color and pattern in nature, especially in marine animals such as octopus and cuttlefish, that have a sophisticated system of rapid adaptive coloration for camouflage and communication. We are really happy to have Roger today with us and we are really looking forward to be able to know more about his research and how it can, maybe, create some resonances with Octodurga. Roger, thank you very much for being here today with us and uh, my first question will be what led you to be interested in octopuses and cephalopods and to dedicate your whole life as a researcher to them? Well, thank you very much for the invitation to partake in this interesting project. 
My interest in this subject, color and pattern in nature, began when I was a college student and I was uh, diving briefly in Panama where my brother was for a while. And I went out on a coral reef and was snorkeling and was swimming over a depression in the coral and something blue water on my stomach scared the daylights out of me. And I circled around and stared down into this depression with coral and I eventually saw this octopus that was beautifully camouflaged, moving just a little bit, and I was mesmerized. I was so mesmerized that I'm still trying to figure out decades later how it can change color and pattern so quickly and disappear from human vision. And so that was really the beginning of it, and I was already a biology student. This helped me focus on this one phenomenon that I saw, and it has many ramifications in art and science. So that was the beginning. It was a long time ago. And I'm still running a sizable research lab, doing a lot of field work and lab experiments to figure out how this system works in a firm scientific manner. Thank you. Amazing. And it's true that octopus, uh, has uh, they have something that fascinates our imagination. And uh, I can imagine that Eduardo Ambaraya had some of these ideas in mind where they started to imagine the project. But maybe to understand a bit better the relation and why this conversation makes, makes sense, Marcus, could you tell us a bit more about who is Ortodurga? Yeah. Um, Juan, thank you very much. And thank you very much for the possibility to talk with you and, uh, and Roger. I think this is going to be quite exciting. Well, you've introduced Ortodurga quite well. She is a cephalopod dancer from, um, from one of Jupiter's moons, Europa, but she is also, she's an, uh, she's an octopus, uh, goddess that kind of undo does, um, relating to Mahadurga, the ancient Indian goddess. She undoes our maybe Western binaries, right? Of nature, culture, um, and so on. And she is on her way from Europa to uh, earth. And um, she's devoted to undoing and making the self through poetry, gestures, and sounds. And with her, she carries, as I said, she carries sound waves from Titan. She carries sound waves from, um, from coral reefs. But she's also um, bringing with her ancient poetry, critique, and so on. She's, uh, she's called to Earth by the calling of our moon that is orbiting uh, the planet. And, um, and with that, the relationship to our ocean. That's who Octodorga is. She's a being that, uh, that emphasizes and forces us to sense in a completely different way, to engage with her in a completely different way and uh, to relate what she brings to us in a, in a different way. I find it intriguing that the connection here is to another planet. And it's interesting because years ago, one of the first productions we ever did for natural history television was called Aliens from Inner Space. This was a BBC production. And the idea was to look at one of the most unusual creatures on planet Earth. And it happened to be the octopus. And the octopus is so alien looking and so alien acting 
that a whole documentary was put together on it. And so some of my colleagues have referred to the octopus as an alien creature. Well, of course, it isn't in reality, but it is so unusual compared to any animal we know of in the ocean or on land that it's worth thinking about it in a different way. And it is different from all other animals in a dramatic way. So I like this concept of extraplanetary kind of affiliations, in this case with an octopus goddess, is an interesting one for food for thought because some of the biology of an octopus really is extremely remote and they can dance very well, by the way. So we should investigate that a little more. That's amazing. Thank you. In fact, uh, we were uh, speaking with Eduardo the other day and uh, and we were wondering if it will ex exist even in a, in a fanciful way the remote possibility that any relative of the octopus may live in any ocean outside the Earth, no? If this is something that could be possible or not. Well, I think if there's water on another planet that we can discover, then yes, there is a possibility that something like an octopus could evolve there. The unusual body shape and brain structure of this animal is very different, but most importantly, it's highly adaptable. And adaptation is a key feature of biological systems. So I think that if you looked at some different planet and it had something comparable to water, you could imagine something like an octopus evolving, uh, especially if you remember that if we look back into the paleontological background of animals on planet Earth, the oceans were where life began. And some of the first large animals and most species and diverse animals that occurred on this planet were the cephalopods. They were the relatives of the octopus and they dominated the oceans for the first millions of years, way before fishes or marine mammals came along. So yes, we already have a clue because on planet Earth in the ocean, the ancient relatives of today's octopus were among the first animals that evolved and they dominated the ocean. So why couldn't that happen on another planet? Maybe it's not water as we know it, but some other medium in which an animal like this could evolve first. Roger, that's that's super interesting. Why do you think they did they did so well in the beginning in the ocean and then all of a sudden they declined in uh, so rapidly in competition with the other marine species? That's a great question. They did dominate the oceans and they did so well for the main reason that they had large shells. They had exterior armor like like modern day snails and so forth and oysters and other mollusks, and they are mollusks, they had this exterior armor and they succeeded well in the early millennia of their existence. But then came along the fishes and the fishes were fast and large and aggressive and they outcompeted the, the slow moving shelled cephalopods for food is the best guess we have. So there was a decline in the cephalopods for a long time, and then came along, much later, what we call the modern-day cephalopods, the coleoids, and they took on a whole different lifestyle by making the shell very small and just a, a vestige only, and they created and evolved this beautiful skin that changes color and pattern, a large brain, 
good sensory organs and fast locomotion. And those, and that is the trick they used to sort of reinvent themselves through evolutionary time. And now they are highly successful in the animals and the animal kingdom. And they have done very well with that new routine. They are mollusks, but they are so different from other mollusks that it's hard to associate them when you just look at them externally and even behaviorally. So that really was the, the whole thing. And they also have this strange life history tactic of live fast and die young. Like other mollusks are very slow growing and very old, maybe 10, 20, 30 years. The cephalopods grow extremely fast and they die mostly within one year. Even some of the large ones might grow two years. So they have a totally different life history, body shape, different brain, different skin, different locomotion. Those are the modern cephalopods that have become so successful in our oceans today. And I might add that they are competing quite well with the fishes, but we have to admit as biologists that the fishes are dominating the oceans today, but the cephalopods are still doing quite well, especially in large numbers. You were telling us about this uh, traveling time of the of the octopuses and cephalopods, and uh, we were speaking about the possibility of uh, cephalopods living in other oceans outside the Earth. Actually, in its second apparition, titled Cryptic Coloration, Octodurga makes a sonic traveling with a camouflaging entitled dance through the solar system to planet Earth. Roger, you have been researching camouflage in octopuses for years. Could you please tell us a bit uh, about uh, this uh, ability that they have? Because uh, as we were saying, in one of the important things in, in this uh, octodurga life and process is uh, when he, he, she arrives to planet Earth and she uses the camouflage. Yes, well, cryptic coloration is one of the hallmarks of the octopus. If you look at all the animals on the earth and you try to assess which animal group has the most sophisticated, fast-changing, and diverse camouflage or coloration in general, it is clearly the octopus and its relatives. And so we've studied this phenomenon uh, thoroughly because it's a major element of natural selection. And I can tell you that one of the trademarks that it's really different in cryptic coloration of the octopus is that it's all controlled directly from the brain by way of the nervous system. Many animals change coloration slowly by hormones in the blood. Well, the octopus and the other cephalopods have done it very differently. Forget that slow change with hormones in the blood. Let's make it as fast as possible. And that is by using nerves, that travel from the brain directly to the muscles that activate the coloration. And now you're getting a change in appearance literally in 200 milliseconds. That's one fifth of one second. That's like the fastest human eye blink. And so they can change instantly. Most importantly though, they have this wide range of cryptic coloration so that they can go in any background in the ocean 
and they can immediately assess that background and create effective camouflage. There's no animal on earth that can do it this well and this fast. So I can really imagine that flying through the universe and trying to be cryptically colored and using the octopus as a model to do that would be very useful. And now it takes us into the overlap in the realm of art and science of camouflage, which my lab has studied extensively. And if you think about it, there's more than one kind of camouflage. Camouflage is not just looking like the background. That is one kind of camouflage and zooming through the universe might be one way to do that for this cephalopod dancer, this octopus goddess. But there are other ways that camouflage can be achieved and it's called disruptive coloration, which evolved out of the cubism art movement in which you can be detected, you can be seen, but you cannot be recognized for what you are. And this is really an amazing trick that octopuses have really evolved to a high degree. It's also common on planet Earth. So when we talk about cryptic coloration, it's not just not being seen, it's, it's being seen in some cases, but not being recognized. And I think this is something that we could expect an alien being to use as one of the mechanisms to get where they're going <laughs> and not get eaten. Roger, I think the uh, I think another really interesting thing from what I understand about cuttlefish, for example, is that they hunt whilst uh, changing colors extremely quickly, and they bedazzle their prey by nearly hypnotizing them. Is that right? Well, there are two parts to that story. Most of us think about camouflage as a defensive mechanism, something they show to a predator so that they don't get eaten. But there is offensive camouflage too, and the cuttlefish uses this, and the octopus as well, in two ways. One way is to remain camouflaged as they approach a prey organism, and they do it with great stealth. They move slowly, they change their camouflage so that they're hard to see against the visual background by the prey organism. But then the next trick, which you just mentioned, is that when they get close to a prey, they switch out of camouflage and they switch to a very bizarre flashing coloration, which we call passing cloud. And it changes the appearance of the cuttlefish so dramatically that we think that the prey organism, in this case a crab, is just visually frozen by looking at this bizarre billboard of changing its appearance. And very swiftly, the cuttlefish then zaps out its two long feeding tentacles and grabs the crab while it's visually entranced, kind of like a deer in the headlights phenomenon. Now, we don't have good research data on that, but that seems to be what's happening. It is really dramatic. And it is the opposite of cryptic coloration. It is conspicuous coloration to dazzle a prey. I think this is a this is such a beautiful um, bridge to Octodoga, right? That also she comes to undo the self. She comes called by the by the environmental crisis inflicted to the ocean, and uh, in her 
bedazzling uh, of uh, the self, right? There's a, there's a possibility to question our relationship to the ocean, our, our um, at the moment, more destructive relationship than a restorative or regenerative or, or a, a moment of care. And I, think, um, I think that's where the camouflaging is a really interesting one as well. Thank you. I think camouflage is a very powerful tool to think about all these uh, questions. So the benefit of changeable camouflage is very obvious. But what's not so obvious is how do you decide which camouflage trick to use in any given situation or any different background? And this is something that the cephalopods have done a great job of working out. And I will tell you the answer is that they do it visually. And what I mean by that is they have very special and very good eyes that look around the immediate vicinity and pick up certain visual information in the background to help them choose and decide and employ the right camouflage pattern. So think about this as an analogy. If you go on a coral reef, on planet Earth. The coral reef is the most colorful and structurally diverse habitat on the planet, land or sea. And so the octopus can go all around a coral reef for two hours, and the diversity is mind-boggling, but they have no problem, apparently, and moving to one spot, assessing the visual information, and creating this unique camouflage pattern for that microhabitat. And then they move to the next spot and the next spot. And during a typical forage of two hours, which they would do every day, they might change their appearance 200 times in two hours. And all the while they're doing it in the most complex visual environment imaginable. And so it's that ability to look out into the world look at the visual information and make a decision about what kind of camouflage to use and to fine tune it and to then deploy it in a fraction of a second. That's what the octopus actually does on planet Earth. So extraterrestrial beings who want to be camouflaged or cryptic in some way might have evolved a similar process, but with, you know, eyes and brains and bodies look different from what we have on this planet. I guess my point is, if you can change appearance, you have to change appearance the right way. And how do you do that? And in this case, you use your eyes if you're an octopus. That's amazing. I think it's very interesting because with these uh, ideas, you can relate camouflage with decision making, of course, and maybe with com communication, right? Because when he when he's deciding uh, what kind of camouflage he's uh, adopting or using, uh, he's deciding to communicate or not communicate with other uh, beings? Yes, I think you hit the key point, and that is decision-making. And I use this analogy all of the time because the coloration for camouflage, as well as the communication using this rapid adaptive coloration system, it is not a reflex. It is not a simple wired reflex in the brain and the body and the nerves. It is a decision-making process in which the animal is taking in sensory information, visual sensory information, integrating that information in the brain, or let's say the computer, and then it is deciding which program to use 
and then deploying it throughout the body to create the appearance. So it is a complex decision-making process. So this is this clearly differentiates from other animals that might change color a little bit or not at all. That's interesting because in the third apparition of uh, Octodurga, titled Cellular Suicide, Octodurga become one with all the entities on planet Earth by changing the composition of the oceans to reach a state of pure empathy. Finally, here we can perceive how Octodurga is a kind of exercise in emo emotional restraint in these complex moments. Marcus, could you tell us a bit more about the working process with the artists? Because speaking with Eduardo, it was clear that for them, this project has been very important in these complex moments we are living of, uh, of uh, lockdown and uh, uh, impossibility to go out, to travel, to be close to others, no? And uh, this project has been some kind of uh, useful tool to go with these complex moments, an emotional tool, let's say. Maybe could you tell us a bit more about the, the working process and how this process uh, has been? Yeah, um, I, think, I think what's important to say is that this is an, a long and ongoing and um, sometimes parallel conversation. And then at some point, I think, uh, I think accelerated and probably catalyzed through um, the, the crisis that you were just describing, it came together. So I've been having an ongoing conversation with, uh, with Eduardo over the years. Uh, he's been part of um, Tidalectics exhibition um, that uh, Stephanie Hessler curated. And um, for his work there, he was part of one of the exploratory voyages to the Marquesas, to which he returned to make the work there. Uh, and ever since then, we've been we've been in conversation. He then returned into the program uh, in uh, two or three years later with uh, with Chutz Martinez, and um, this conversation was going was an ongoing conversation also about his practice of drawing, his practice of embodiment, uh, all of this. Simultaneously, he had um, he had the conversation with with Ria and Patriusz. Right, who are um, barrier. Uh, I think this stems from a from a residency that he did in in India for a time, and uh, they've been having this this ongoing conversation. And uh, so I think this was a moment where uh, these two came together, and these two I think conversations that are that are somehow one of the attributes is an attribute of of long term and friendship and intimacy. Right? And all of a sudden, they came together um, when when TBA Twenty One decided to uh, to create stage and has extended the invitation to commission two works for stage to the academy. And Eduardo was an was an obvious uh, choice for me because of this ongoing conversation, and he had done a very very um, interesting animation together with Ingo Niemann. For uh, for an exhibition the year before, and uh, and I was really interested in continuing this. So when uh, when we first started to talk about the the animation being part being um, part of the stage, 
he immediately brought in uh, Baria. Uh, and the first conversations were really a, a space, I would say, that was a, a counter, even, even though it only happened online and video and, and uh, connections were bad. But although, or despite the fact that they were kind of Zoom conversations or digital video conversations, right? There, there was this level of friendship and trust and, and uh, the, the possibility of being completely uh, open and experimental and exploring really uh, out there questions and concepts and, and uh, forms of, of uh, expression, right? Never forms of representation, but forms of expression. And what happened was a, I would say, a very loose uh, set of um, conversations that we were having uh, over time, the four of us together, uh, exploring what this could be. And it went all the way, you know, from the, from the embodied practice to, to uh, of Eduardo to the radical uh, counter poetry of Baria, the sound work that they were doing uh, and his drawing practices. And, uh, and we, we in, a, in a really, in this very, I would say, very productive space of trust, right? We, we were exploring all of these different components. So it was a very free, very, um, very inspirational, very inspired, very um, experimental set of conversations that we had. And, uh, and in the meantime, they developed the different, um, the different components together because the components are drawing, animation, sound work, and poetry and the layers of this work. There's so many layers to the work that are not immediately um, visible and in, uh, immediately apparent that really come and it, it, it asks from you. It actually asks from you nothing, right? If you engage with the work, and that's what I really like. It asks nothing. But if you engage with the work, um, you, can, you can dive very, very, very deep and on a, on a very superficial level. Right? It's, a, it's a beautiful, meditative, simple, in quotation marks, animation. And, uh, and this is what I, what I really love about the work, that it has uh, these multi-dimensions, these many, many, many layers, but it's, it's very unassuming. It's a, yeah, and this is really, this is really what, the, uh, what the process was like as well. It was a, an immediate uh, sensation of trust, an immediate, I would say, there was this moment of, of uh, total experimentation, total poetic endeavor, right? And uh, all of this comes together in, this, in these beautiful three chapters, plus the, the body of poetry um, that is provided as well by Varia. So Marcus has mentioned this concept of embodiment as part of the ongoing conversation. And I really am surprised and delighted to note that there is an analog in biology for this term embodiment because the octopus has such a strange body that neurobiologists, those who study the brain and the nervous system, and those who study morphology, the actual anatomy of the animal, have struggled to figure out how to compare the octopus, both its brain and its body, to other animals in an evolutionary context. And it turns out to be an impossible task unless you bring in the concept of embodiment. We can only approach the key question of 
how intelligent an octopus might be by thinking about embodiment, which forces us to think about what equipment does the octopus have to create intelligence. And let's, let's figure that out in the context of where that animal lives and how it behaves and what it eats and what eats it. And so when you do that, you can come up with a different view of, of how the world works for that particular animal. And you can begin to make sense out of the octopus, which seems like an alien creature compared to other animals on planet Earth. But once you think of the embodiment, look at its strange brain. Yes, it's strange, but it works perfectly for that animal. Its brain is very large. It's very complicated. There are over 30 lobes of the brain. This is complex by any comparison to any other animal on the planet, including humans. But you can only begin to understand it when you remember that it's got eight arms, and each of those eight arms has the equivalent of a tiny little satellite brain. And that arrangement is really unique on the planet. And so the embodiment concept is very important in understanding how the octopus on Earth does its strange things like cryptic coloration and, and all the rest, and how its brain controls eight arms for complex locomotion. And now we can begin to redefine intelligence and capability for the octopus in terms that we can understand biologically and then make the analogies either to you know human intelligence or to alien intelligence. So I think embodiment, it's, it's nice to see this convergence of ideas between um, biology in this case and also what Marcus was describing sort of from more of the art and poetry side uh, of viewing. I think uh, exactly this, uh, Roger, the, the alien nature of the anatomy of the uh, octopus, right, and what this kind of means for our understanding of, uh, of our being and, and our being in the world, and what it forces us to, the distance that it forces us to imagine. Right. This is exactly the space for the experimentation that we allowed ourselves to step into. And, and uh, so much of Eduardo's practice is really this, um, the question of embodiment, maybe of other, uh, of other species and other beings or, um, you know, uh, kind of digesting artworks uh, themselves and the question of what that does to you and what does that, uh, what that does to the artwork. That's, that's really the, that was the space that we started conversing in and and imagining from and uh, it really is it's quite a stretch now to to think about a, an organism with a decentralized network of brains that uh, that function together and choreographed and function autonomously as well right and then with all the other uh, attributes that you've mentioned before right so uh, it became the perfect experimental space to talk through and imagine from. So this is really, so there is, there is this very close connection to uh, the body of the octopus itself. Thank you. I'd like to add um, two things. One is you talked about many layers to your approach to this. And the octopus also depends on many layers, even in the skin itself. How does it produce all those marvelous and diverse appearances? And they do it by these beautifully designed layers, first of pigments in the top of the skin, and then underneath are these reflectors that give you iridescent colors. 
And so the idea, and then there's a third layer that creates whiteness to enhance contrast. So with pigments and different kinds of reflectors and three layers in the skin, even the skin is layered. Now, if the skin is layered, it means that there might be some layering in the brain to control each of the layers, and indeed there is. And so if you look at that complicated brain that I just mentioned, it has what we call higher motor centers, then intermediate motor centers, and then lower motor centers. And each one of those takes information from the eye and makes decisions and tells the skin what to do in a layered fashion as well. So there are a lot of layers that can explain even the alien anatomy of the octopus. What I want to segue into now is why I work with artists so often in trying to understand cryptic coloration and camouflage. And so my main connections are with Rhode Island School of Design. And the reason I find this so powerful is that artists, and this is artists writ large, I'm not talking about just an artist painting on a canvas. I'm talking about architects and design and architect, you know, it doesn't matter. Any Anyone who does anything in the broad art field, they are creating things that are visually or tactilely attractive to humans. That's what artists do. And they have a wonderful intuitive feel for what attracts human beings. And so I like that intuitive feel and they also get trained in that. And I like to take those concepts and think about what the parallels are to help us think differently about how to understand animal camouflage. And so one quick example would be edge design. In other words, whatever the object is, in this case in camouflage, it would be the edge and the outline of the animal. How does an animal make its edge blend into the background? Or how does it create false edges that draw the attention of the observer to just one part of the body so that it no longer looks like the whole animal that the animal's hunting for and looking for. And so edge design is extremely important. And artists of every ilk know how to play wonderful games with edges in their design. And there are even professors at Rhode Island School of Design who talk about smart lines and dumb lines and even the shape and the changing geometry of a line in this case to create an edge can really deceive human vision and animal vision very well now i can imagine that in an, in an alien concept a lot of these things would work as well so a lot of cross-disciplinary interdisciplinary interaction about things that we take for granted and pulling together different, very different fields. Art and science are very different in many ways, but for color and pattern, there's a lot of overlap. Remember, this is the first of a two-part special episode. Stage, this Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Thyssen Bornemisa Art Contemporary. This was a co-commission between Stage and TBA21 Academy.
Special thanks to Marcus Reimann. Remember to visit our website to experience the work of Eduardo Navarro and Barilla on www.stage.tba21.org. If you enjoy listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. Today's episode was dedicated to Eduardo Navarro and Barilla. The interviews were conducted by Juan Canela. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Urroz is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutiérrez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramírez. Nina Esperanda and Gidra Bellodova are our project managers. Elena Utrilla is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Anna Esteve. Our theme music is by Carmichael von Hauswald. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.